Hey people, welcome back to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I am Manda Scott, your host at this place on the net, where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. My guest this week is one of those people who gets things done. Pam Barrett has worked as a civil servant in the heart of the UK Westminster government, but then she moved to Devon and became involved in local politics almost by default, as you will hear, first as an activist, and then as what I think can best be described as an activist councillor on the local town council. And we live in a world where the limbic hijack of national politics has pretty much taken over. It's going to be really, really hard to gain traction at a national level to do things that go against the moneyed establishment in ways that create a flourishing future for people and the planet. There's too much big money involved in winding people up to make sure that doesn't happen. We just have to look at the national and the international news to see that playing out in real time. But at the local level, anywhere in the world, we can still make a difference. And that's the level where communities are built and where change happens. And with the local elections coming up in the UK, I really wanted to talk to Pam about her work, about what she made happen, how she did it, and how we can emulate her. And then, here in the UK, there was a kind of social media sensation when the Zoom minutes of Handforth Parish Council were released. And with the best will in the world, there is some dysfunction there. So we have moved the scheduling of this a little. We've put Richard Murphy to next week. So when I say in the podcast we spoke to Richard Murphy last week, actually, we did. But you won't hear it until next week. So that we could bring Pam forward, not just because it gives people more time to put themselves forward as candidates in the local elections, once you've heard about what can be achieved and how to do it, but also because the whole process of local democracy is really in the news just now. And we wanted to pick up on that. For those of you who are not in the UK, I have put a link in the show notes because I suspect that dysfunctional local politics is probably not ours alone, and that the scope for change at a local level is planet-wide. So, people of the podcast, please do welcome Pam Barrett. So, Pam Barrett, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast. On what is a snowy morning for us, and not snowy for you, I imagine quite a lot of kids are going to be quite sad that they're not going to be sledging down the streets of Buckfastly. <laughs> How is it? Yeah, well, it's lovely and sunny and cold, but um, the kids will be disappointed, I think. As we record, it's February, so um, you never know, we might get more snow. And possibly best not to be snowed in, as some of my American friends have been. I hope you guys in the States are all peaceful now. So, Pam, you are the person, probably one of the few in the UK, who is really actually changing the nature of the democratic process and what democracy can do on the ground in Devon. So I really want to explore that in depth in this podcast. But before we get there, can we have a little bit of a history of who Pam is and how you got to be the person who is making change happen? Yes. Um, where would you like to start? Do you want to go back to childhood? or Wherever feels relevant to what you're doing just now, actually, to be yeah, honest. Well, I think. Um... I think, you know, a little bit of childhood is probably a sensible place to start. So I, I'm one of six children. I'm the youngest of a family of six and was born in Leeds to mum and dad. Dad was a, an Irish labourer and my mum was a, a cleaner and mum. So very much working class background on a big housing estate in Leeds. 
And I think that has shaped me a lot. You know, we had two very active parents who obviously we weren't rich. Um, we, we always managed to, to get by, but we were shown and interested in things. So we were outside. My, if I think of my childhood, I was outside most of the time. We were on bikes. We were fixing bikes. We were showing nature. We were learning things. And um, I think that was quite a marked difference to lots of people in our environment. Um, and I think knowing how lucky we were to have that sort of start and what difference it's made to my family's life. Uh, all our siblings are in public sector um, and, um, you know, a lot more comfortable than when we grew up. And I think that has been part of the stuff that shaped me. And from there, uh, university, Liverpool, and then a bit of a period working for the Citizens Advice Bureau before my first proper job as a civil servant. And I ended up moving down to London in about 1992, I think, and became the private secretary to the permanent secretary of uh, customs and excise at that time. So very much sort of in the, the sort of Whitehall remit. And I've worked my way through the civil service for 30 years, really, a lot of policy, organisational, HR change, but tending to be sort of towards the, the sort of coordinating centre of a department. So I've had a lot of experience, which I've only really realised how much it's permeated into my skill set over the past sort of six or seven years. But comms and planning and strategy and organisational development, those sorts of things I've picked up over the time. So I was in London until 13 years ago, moved down to Devon with my husband and found myself in Buckfastly living a very different life to the one that I'd been used to in London. And that's, I think, where I've had some time to bed into the community that I'm in and began to see possibilities of how things might work better or make things better for people who live here. So for people around the world who have never been to Buckfastly, I am lucky that I have because I lived nearby when I was at Schumacher. But can you describe a little bit about the nature of the place so that we can get a sense of the place you were embedding into? Yes, so where you are a little town on the edge of Dartmoor, the southern edge of Dartmoor, which is a, a high rural upland with moors and forests and woodland, so a really beautiful part of the world. The town itself is sort of part medieval at core um, and then sort of industrialising through the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. And very much focused on the woolen industry. So it's a historic woolen town, which means that we have factories and industry, or we did have factories and industry at the heart of the community, and lots of housing providing accommodation for workers. And over time, it's been thriving. There's a three and a half thousand people here at the moment. And the biggest change, I would think, in the past decade is the closing of those factories, um, where the sheep uh, skins and fleeces and uh, wool was was made and that's led to a loss of income and employment and at the same time a lot of the cuts that have been made um, under the badge of austerity have left us without uh, services in town anymore and also cut off our transport to our nearest link so you end up with a very pretty town a very sort of traditional town in a lot of ways in a beautiful setting but with a reasonably large amount of deprivation sat aside some quite high affluence and the disparity between the two is quite marked really and that inability to access services and facilities is um, is getting worse and I think that's what's driven me to 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 try and fix. Brilliant, thank you. So stepping back a little bit before we look at how you were involved in the local democracy in Buckfastly, I'm just curious to know all of your siblings ended up in in civil service of some sort. Did you enter customs and excise and that level, really high up level of the civil service, believing that you could change it or believing that it was already an inherently good thing and that you could be part of a, a grander system that was doing useful stuff? Well, in retrospect, it'd be nice to say the latter. I think actually it was born out of necessity at the time. I'd been unemployed for a couple of years and um, found myself, there was an opening up in Liverpool to join the civil service. I was allocated to a government department. Um, I always expected it to be, uh, you know, a year or two while I found another job to do. I mean, at the time I was also working for the Citizens Advice Bureau and that was really formative for me as well. Being unemployed, I was struggling with my own finances 
and dealing with things like housing and water bills. Um, and I sort of knew that, you know, this wasn't going to be my life forever. It's really difficult when you're dealing with your own stuff. And I found volunteering for the CAB, I was able to already sort of start making a difference. I remember going with, with clients who'd come into the CAB to go over to the social security office at the time where people had been left without funding and been able to advocate for them right. in a way which I couldn't do for myself. Right. Getting a lot a lot of satisfaction and a lot of sort of moral outrage at what was happening to people. And so I was very young when I was doing that. You know, I'd have been 19, 20 probably. And that was really formative. But at the same time I was working for the when I started working for the civil service, I had um, a really interesting trip out. A friends of mine, good friends of mine had arranged some cottages up in the Lake District and yeah. I remember They'd all agreed to to pick us up and take us up to uh, Lake District. And a whole fleet of red BM, brand new BMWs turned up outside the house to, to take us up. And in each one of the cars was a very young Kellogg's executive. And I remember they were lovely people, absolutely lovely. But I remember they were about my age. They were all marketing executives for Kellogg's and... They talked, you know, we went away for the weekend. They were talking a lot about, you know, their account with Honey Nut Loops or, or whatever they were doing. And I think I'd just been working on a on a budget proposal, which was about, you know, I don't know, £600 million worth of public funding coming in. And it was a really conscious moment of me of I could never imagine fulfilling my life managing a, a Honey Nut Loop account, no matter <laughs> if it came with a shiny red BMW. So yes. they're the bits in life that you just think, no, I'm, I'm pleased to be in the, the public sector. So it was a very, dis- it was a, v- even though I found myself in it by accident, staying in it was a very precise decision. Right. Thank you. Really interesting. So 13 years ago, you come down to Buckfast Lee, and we've got this beautiful little town nestling on the edge of Dartmoor which for people not familiar with the UK, it's in the, the southwest toe of England. Um, and and the sea is always kind of not quite just out of reach in all directions, really. The only, the only other county left is Cornwall, which is even further down in the southwest. And, and Devon has become a place where people from London buy their second homes or retire to when they've got huge amounts of money and want to go and go to somewhere nice in the country. And so Buckfastley, I'm sure like other places in Devon, ends up with that real disparity between the people who have more money than they know what to do with and the people who have lived there for generations whose factories have closed and and now who are really suffering. So having seen that and coming from the background that you described can you tell us a little bit about how you began to move into the local democratic system? Yeah, I think our first forays into it was around in 2012 when we had a flooding event in our town. So the bottom end of our town, um, we'd had a huge a summer of enormous rain, relentless rain. The houses are surrounded by rivers, which were used in the woolen industry for, for cleaning fleeces. And this particular year, the rivers were overwhelmed and a part of the town at the bottom end of town flooded, which included my house and my neighbours' houses. It was very traumatic, very upsetting, did a lot of damage. And I think what we as a community, the people at the bottom end of town, our neighbours wanted to work with the town council to put a flood plan in place and try and address the issues. Hmm. And it was really clear that the town council didn't see any value in speaking to those people who'd been affected by flooding. Uh, We had a real battle on our hands, first of all, to get any help. So we ended up having to help ourselves because there was precious little help from the town. Once we'd recovered from the immediate effect of the flooding, we'd done the clear up. What was most frustrating was trying to get a seat at the table where decisions were being made about uh, what flood plan we would have in place. And flood plans were drawn up without our involvement. Uh, Our comments were not taken on board. And it just seemed to me absolutely crazy that um, anybody would choose to work like that. You know, never mind whether it was, you know, the right or proper thing to do. Actually, the plan that they were drawing up was wrong because it failed to include the people who were there on the ground when it happened. So um, it was that resistance there to engage with us, which basically set me off on a on a start of actually, well, I'll do it myself. So I set up a flood group, um, which then managed to get work done and improvements made and a communication channel in place. But 
it was very much working, not only not just being ignored, but being worked against. And right. it was that arrogance of the system. And I think the arrogance of the system at all levels that really irritated me and sort of started the journey, I think. And started the journey in terms of you demonstrating that you were competent and proactive and you cared about local people, which I'm assuming your local governance is similar to the local governance here. And you're right, that level of detachment of the governing group from the actual things that are happening on the ground seems to be almost universal in the places where it hasn't been explicitly addressed, not just in Britain, but but all around the world. So I'm guessing you became very popular with your neighbours and also because it always seems to me that there are the people who talk about stuff and there are people who get stuff done. And sometimes you can drag the people who talk about stuff in, into the group of the people who get stuff done. But generally speaking, in any community, the same people turn up time after time to be the getting stuff done. And you had established as one of those. So how was the step to becoming an elected member of the council? Was that straightforward? Yeah, there was an intermediate uh, situation, I think, pertinent to what you're saying. So that was 2012-13. In 2013, our next tier of council decided that, declared that they were going to close our 120-year-old outdoor swimming pool. The town was outraged. And by this time, I'd begun to get quite irritated with the lack of cuts. So you were seeing bus services cut, the youth funding had been cut. You know, I'd moved to Bookfastly deliberately because I thought it was lovely. And then to see what was happening to it was just really sad. So it, you know, for me, it wasn't a case of moving into a place and trying to a change it. It was just, it was just being salami sliced and a death by a thousand cuts. And people were so cross about the swimming pool. But like you said, nobody, everyone was cross. Mm. Nobody was doing anything about it. And I just thought it was too much to sit and watch that go. So I became very active, involved in the campaign to save the pool. Very long story, very shortly, I ended up taking over as chair of the charity um, of the pool. We raised £350,000 worth of capital grant and we run it to this day. We rebuilt and remanaged the park and the pool and we run that really successfully now. So that was between 2014 and we started managing the pool in 2015 and it was 2015, we took over in April 2015, and the elections were in May 2015 for the town and parish council. Wow. So actually, in that time, from about January, February 2015, when we knew realised there was an election coming up, thought we could probably do better. We contemplated, so there was a few different groups, people involved in the library, people involved with a, a difficult planning application, which was a really horrific incinerate a bottom ash dump which was planned for our town there's like Bookfastly was really very much the underdog if the services could be cut from it or uh you know any burden that was being based was was stuck on Bookfastly because we're out on a limb and it's not as posh as the towns and villages around us so I think there was always an expectation that nobody would put up a fight right. having a few of us you know done the flooding done this planning application done the swimming pool it was like well should we should we bother um, standing for the town council because we're obviously quite you know competent at doing stuff outside the system but we thought it would give us some legitimacy we also thought it might shake things up a little bit and and be a bit of fun hmm. and so we decided uh, to get a group together and to force the first election at our town council level for as far back as records show so it there is no record of an actual election before 2015 in Buckfast Lake. What happened instead for people who are not familiar with the UK system? How could there not be? So every four years, in theory, there is an election. Um, so that's the length of term of an office. And there are 12 seats on our town council. And what happens is if 12 people or fewer put themselves up for election, then they're all, they're all automatically made councillors. Right. Yeah, which which makes sense. And the situation is the town councils have become so detached and irrelevant to the community that quite often, you know, councils are running with five or six or seven wow. people with vacancies because nobody puts themselves forward. Right. So there had never been an election. You know, this was the first time. So in 2015, we found ourselves with uh, over this time of me being a little bit of an agitator, the town council had packed its council so oh, that they didn't have any vacancies. <laughs> I think possibly worried that I might try and take one, um, but I had no 
no um, intention of wasting my time as one person out of 12 on a town council. But actually, we were in a position then to put nine people up for the 12 seats and um, we took them all. We took all nine. So first, two questions. The we, is this the we from the swimming pool group or also from the flood group or just a group of activists? And then what did you run under? So separate question. Let's ask, find out who is we first. Well, I can't actually remember how it started. I'd created some Facebook groups after the flood, which was relatively early in 2012 to sort of improve communication. So I'd created the town Facebook groups mostly to help speed up communication. But of course, it became very valuable for sort of you know, sharing what was happening. I can't remember how we started, but about 12 or 15 of us met up for breakfast one morning in, let's say, February 2015. And we definitely didn't know each other. We might have been aware of each other a little bit, a little bit more than others. Right. And out of that, we had a discussion and nine of the 15 people there agreed to stand for election. So we formed a group. We decided to call ourselves the Buckfastly Independent Group. Right. Um, and which gave us a lovely acronym of BIG. And uh, yeah. we set about having big ideas and asking the big question and even having big breakfasts and all that sort of stuff. So it was quite close to the campaign by that time. So we formed a group. It's interesting to know it, it has no constitution. It's just a loose affiliation of people who choose to call themselves the Buckfastly Independence Group. And shortly after we formed ourselves, and I think it was literally a matter of days, I found Peter McFadden and Flatpat Democracy somehow okay. or another. So you found that Spoke after. to Peter. Yeah, right. yeah. So, and, and what, so for people who don't know, um, Flatpat Democracy is a, a book written by Peter McFadden from Froome, and it sort of documents how you can go about taking over town and parish councils. It was written probably, I would think, 2013-ish, 2014, and Froome had uh, taken over its town council, the independence from Froome, uh, in the previous cycle, so four years before that, so 2011 or so, I think. And um, it was really handy for us as a shortcut. I went and bought, you know, 10 copies of the book, gave them out to everybody. And it was a really handy shortcut of how to manage your campaign. And Peter and the independents from Froome uh, were able to just really just provide us with some general encouragement and support. And it was really reassuring to know that what we were thinking was along the right lines. Did you at any point consider standing for, say, the Green Party or or Labour or any of the actual political parties? Or what was the conscious decision to remain independent even before you knew about the, the kind of independent model that Flatpak puts forward? There's a bit of a a bit of a longer story here, really. Flatpak democracy is very much based on independent politics, um, because Froome is a, a lot bigger than Buckfastly. There were parties, um, you know, refusing to cooperate with each other. I've always said our form of flatpack democracy uh, in small towns is slightly different because party politics isn't really an issue down here. Okay. Not at this level. It is at higher levels, and and there it's just as bad. It's in irrelevance right. here. Um, and it was more about the lack of ambition of councils and the processes that they chose to work within. So, you know, the failure to communicate with the community, uh, the failure to address what was happening. Uh, you know, if we go back to the swimming pool example for me, the, the town council meeting met with the district council the next tier up. And there seemed to just be an acceptance that this was a thing that was happening. So while the higher tier authority was saying, this is too expensive, we can't fit, it's not fixable, nobody uses the pool anyway, that's where we're going to close it. The the lack of interest from those in the council, town council, you know, it, nobody was asking, well, you know, well, how much does it cost to run? What is the problem with it? You know, how many people do use it? Um and you know, and and it was that lack of ambition that drove us, rather than the party politics. So there have been other points. So at the same time in 2015, there were district council elections, and I did stand for district council. You're allowed to stand for both simultaneously. Yeah, yeah, you oh, can. Interesting. What happens if you get into both? Well, you you end up being both. There's plenty of you know, in a lot of cases, 
a lot of town councils, particularly those within the party system, will be town, district and county. And then also sitting on other authorities as well. So once you move out of the town county system, it can become quite lucrative. Town and parishes don't pay anything, so it's all volunteer. Mm -hmm. But as you move up district and county, they come with quite decent allowances. I don't know how... Oh God! And and if you end up sitting on local authority boards like Dartmoor National Park or the police and crime commissioners or school bodies and stuff, the amount of allowances you can get can knock up to, if you're a senior person in the county, you know, 50 grand's worth of allowances. So it's not to be sniffed right. at. So, so the career politicians are very much in that. But it it is that lack of, in, in small town councils like Buckfastley, it's not party politics. It's... Right. It's a lack of ambition and direction, and that's really where um, Peter and I's approach sort of slight is slightly. I'm not going to say different, but complementary. I think um, okay. taking taking cognizance of what's actually happening on the ground in some of these communities. Okay, so for people listening who are not familiar with Flatpak, I will put a link in the show notes. And and essentially, part of the problem in Froome rather than Buckfastly was that Froome Town Council had reached stasis because whatever one party did, the other party automatically wouldn't do. And so nothing ever got done. Whereas what Pam is describing is a town council who doesn't get anything done anyway, which is just, just so distressing. But can I ask, just because in the UK, the May elections are coming back up again. And for people who are interested in doing this, I'm curious about the actual logistics, remembering the fact that I... I stood as a paper candidate, again, in a seat that had never been contested four years ago. I'm going to stand as a paper candidate again this time. Probably not even a paper candidate because it seems that we're being told that because of COVID, we're not allowed to even go and put leaflets through people's doors. So, But leaving that aside, I found the actual logistics of the paperwork that I had to fill in really daunting. I'm not a paperwork person. When something comes through the door and says, basically, this is a criminal act if you get it wrong, I found it, if somebody hadn't been there to do it for me, I wouldn't have gone near it. So without a bigger party structure there to help you guys, how did you, you were just used to fielding ghastly looking official papers because of your past history it, it might be i'm i'm atrocious at following instructions as well i mean i think this is where the power of a gang you know a gang of you working together i think is really important so you have a good mix of skills actually at town and parish council level it's not actually that complicated the paperwork that's been developed is is relatively simple uh, you put yourself forward you get a certain number of people to sign to say that they support you i can't remember exactly then you get your paperwork into the system there is a timetable it is important you get it right but i think you know either within your own group or the support from now we've grown this group of flat pack democracy we've got a bunch right. of mentors we've all been through it there's people who are better at some people who are better at the paperwork and, than others so the help and support is there for anyone who who wants it that that bit is not overly complicated. And being an independent candidate now is being part of a movement rather than just being a person or a group of people who've decided to stand independently. It's, it's almost becoming a coherent sense of community in itself. Am I right? It can be. There are a lot of people who call themselves independent candidates who are not necessarily signed up party members. But um, what we're talking about here with Flatpack Democracy is a different thing. Right. A lot of time you'll find independent councillors who are often on the fringes of mainstream party politics. Um, they have a they have a political agenda. Right. But that's not what we're talking about here. And often I. I liken it. I've sort of we've we've Pete, we've had lots of discussions about what this is, what this movement is. I I call it the indie movement. A bit more like my, my husband is a going to call him an old indie pop rocker. Um, he won't <laughs> won't like being called old. But in the in the indie bands in the eighties, early to mid eighties, so he had a band then, and it was indie music. It's very much post punk, and it was all coming out of doing it yourself. So you know, right. setting up your own label. Uh, doing your own tours, managing your own tours, and actually having that freedom to to do stuff. So I very much call it indie rather than independent. So it is about okay. a, a DIY punk ethos, about not not just trying to fit into the current system, but about changing the current system. And that is fundamental to me 
um, in terms of what we're doing. It's not a case of ousting the old guard, however good or poor they are, and filling their seats. It's about transformation of the system because the system is rotten and it needs tackling. And did you campaign with that as part of the basis of your campaign? The system is rotten, we want to be different and this is how we'll be different? Yeah, I mean, we we, we, we campaigned locally on the basis of there's loads of things that needs doing in our town and we, we want to do them and we want to involve you in working out what that is. So in Flatpat right. Democracy, Peter sets out really clearly about developing a way of working. So you don't stand with a manifesto, you don't stand to say even going to save the swimming pool or you know we're going to you know improve the leisure services or or whatever you're standing on a mechanism which is we're going to change the system so that it it talks to the community about what's needed and then finds a way to make that happen and all of us will work for the betterment of the community we don't necessarily know the answers to everything but we will talk and find out so that I think is fundamental. And in a lot of little places like Bookfastly, and I would say, you know, from any communities that are between a thousand and, you know, 10,000 people, hmm. you don't need to be that formulaic about it. People, people don't engage uh, with, with elections at all sorts of levels <laughs> and actually coming at it afresh of, isn't there some stuff here that needs doing? How about we talk about what it is and then do it? it you know, what's not to like? itself transformational. Did you end up going kind of door to door talking to people? Did you find that people really understood what you were saying and engaged with it? Yeah, I mean we I again I can't remember the numbers. We didn't we did do a bit of door to door, obviously, you know, pre-covid, what a refreshing time to be able to do. But we did a lot of online communications, we did leaflets and brochures. I think it was the first time there'd been any canvassing in in our town for a long time. Right. And um we obviously by that time there were a number of us who had quite high profiles in town because of the successes we'd had over the previous years. Um, And then for other people who were maybe much lower profile or relatively new to town but were keen to to be involved, because we were all labelled as the Buckfastly Independent Group on the election paper, it meant people could say, oh, I know Neil, I know Pam, you know, these other people are standing with them. They must be okay. Yeah, so what we were finding was when we went to the election count where you could watch the papers coming in, there was all the 12 existing town councillors were on the ballot and the nine of us. And because of the way it's laid out on the counting table, you could see either people were voting for every single one of the old guard right? or they were voting for every single one of us. And right. and you could just see there was this, this split. And actually, we had a really high turnout. One of the old guard, actually, a lovely man. Uh, got, and that's the thing. I think at the time it might have been a bit angsty. You know, but in retrospect, it was people trying to do their best, but the system was rotten. Mm. Um, in, yeah. it, that's not true in all cases, but in some cases it, it was. You know, these are good people who joined in to try and do something, but just found themselves slotting into a system which was just suffocating um, with no inspiration, no direction, no ambition. And not your experience of working within systems. I think I think what yeah. I'm guessing you and possibly the others brought to it was, guys, it doesn't have to be like this. And here is a vision of how it could be different. I think so. I, I'm very, as I was saying earlier, I'm not very good at following rules and instructions. You know, give me a remote control or a new computer. I just press buttons until something happens. I have no idea. And I think I was quite shocked, you know, coming out of Whitehall and the civil service, which, you know, isn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination but I'd been working at the centre of Whitehall with lots of uh, consultation impact assessments looking at how any changes in policy might affect different segments of the society you know uh, they feel felt to me so this is you know sort of in the 1990s up to you know two early 2000s that there was a real attempt to try and involve user voice to reflect what was happening and to try and alleviate some of the um, deprivation that was embedded in society. And I think moving out to a rural place and looking at the state of local government um, and actually having a job which was much less pressured than my, my previous job, I just thought this is this is wrong. There is no attempt to assess the impact of the cuts to youth services on communities which are more deprived than others. 
And you'd see that really starkly, I think, into something like 2014. The local county council had done a review of youth services. A little town next door to us, which we have a very friendly rivalry with, Ashburton. It's a, it's a much more affluent community than, than Buckfastly. So Buckfastly is effectively a mill town. Ashburton was always the market town. So, you know, mm-hmm. for, for centuries, there is a difference. There's a difference in size of houses, grandeur of houses, housing stock. You know, we were still building council houses here in the 20s and 30s and 40s to provide labour force to the factories. Right. So there's been a massive gentrification. And we're only a few, less than three miles away from each other, but there's no transport in between, not as much as there used to be, and it's expensive. But actually, there was a review of youth services done, and, and I'm not exaggerating. There were some, there was like 21 activities looked at. So we we often have our data set presented together, Buckfastly and Ashburton. Right. There were something like 21 activities that they'd identified that youth could do in Buckfastly. 19 of those were in Ashburton, which may as well be on the moon because you can't get there after six o'clock because there's no buses. And the two that were in Buckfastly, one was a private climbing wall, which mm. was fantastic, but was private. I've climbed The other there. thing was was a Crown Green Bowling Club, which is... <laughs> and, and so there is a report by Devon County Council that says there's 21 things for kids to do in Buckfastly. These are the... All of them are in Ashburton. There's two here. And on that basis, they cut our youth funding by 100%. So they took all our funding away. So there was no youth service provision. What? And actually, you're looking at a, a poor community next to a much more affluent community. And all the services are in the more affluent community. And that's another one of those. It's like, well, who's doing who's doing the impact assessments on these decisions? And I, I've been asking that now for what well, God knows how long, 10 you know, years. I think the answer is nobody does an impact assessment on them. And that is quite shocking to me coming out of yes. of government. So policy decisions, creative ways. I mean, I have no doubt that councils have found it really difficult. You know, our county council has seen a 40% reduction in its revenue from central government over the past decade. Um, it can't really focus on very much more other than its its statutory obligations. But actually, I think the way they've, what they've done in all circumstances is remove services from communities and centralise them in places which have a bigger population, but effectively leave everybody outside of those areas in rural communities unable to access even basic services. And that's the bit that I think is wrong, because we now as a poor community have no public sector realm in Buckfastly at all, which means we don't have our police have been cut, removed, they're gone, we don't have it. So actually, even the referral agencies that would be relied upon to get services for children who might be in difficulty or danger are not there anymore. So the service itself is now centralised in a town which is 10 miles away from us, which is more affluent than us. We can't access those services. But actually, the argument is that actually people can still be referred into them, but we don't have the referral services on the ground. So it's taken... It's taken that discussion about, actually, if you're not getting any referrals in from Buckfastly, which is, you know, one of the most deprived areas of the of the, 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 the district council, then you, that should be setting alarm bells for you that there's something wrong with the system. And I think what worries me is that it doesn't appear to be setting off alarm bells. The fact that Buckfastly doesn't show up on lots of indices is seen that there isn't an issue here where it only takes a few seconds of thought to realise that there's a system breakdown here and it's that system breakdown that we're trying to fix. But you have to care about it. So I'm really curious, and this is taking us on a bit of a side step, and we'll come back to the main thread in a moment. But from the sound of things, you were working in in Whitehall, in central government in the UK, during the last Labour administration. Devon, as far as I can tell, is run by the Tories. Austerity is a is an ideological we. In the last podcast, we talked to Richard Murphy about economics, about where money comes from, about the fact that ideology affects our economy and that austerity is an ideological choice. And it's an ideological choice made by people who actually don't care about the things that you're talking about. And I'm wondering, are there still impact assessments being made in Whitehall in the way that there were in the Labour years? Because I I remember reading something on a, a blog about the fact that the 
Blair years, Blair was a ghastly predatory neoliberal, but at least the people in charge didn't hate the poor. And then the Tories come in and you've got essentially the same economic policy, but you've got people in charge who genuinely don't care about the indices that you're talking about. Am I being wildly unfair or is it to that extent that the people on the right don't have any interest in what's happening to people under a certain income bracket? So um, I think that's really interesting. I, you know, I am still a servant, serving civil servant. I'm currently on a career break after an, an accident, and um, you know, I may be going back. There, there's been a dramatic, certainly been a dramatic shift. And I think, you know, when I was working at the Treasury, there was a an aim was to reduce childhood poverty. So that was undoubtedly, you know, a, a, an aim. It was um, impact. There, there were impact assessments done on what it would do to childhood poverty. I'm not at the centre of Whitehall anymore, so I don't know what's going on. But I could see the shift when I was towards people who, whether they care or not, I don't know, but they're coming from a place where they just simply don't have knowledge and experience of what it's like to be living in these circumstances. And that's where, you know, you look at your own personal background and understand how difficult some of those things can be. And I I think that's why it's really important to get more voices in decision making. Because if you don't understand the impact of waiting five or six weeks for your first very little universal credit payment, because you can't imagine that somebody doesn't have five or six weeks worth of money saved to live off, that's how you end up with policies that mm. do that. I mean, if you've not been near people who, you know, don't have access to laptops at home because you haven't got right. broadband or you've got one mobile phone, you couldn't envisage that it might be really difficult to learn from home over Zoom. And I I think those barriers, um, if you're working with a very privileged bunch of, of ministers mm. in, a, yeah. in a party, uh, I don't see how they could understand what it's like for people who are at completely outside their realm of, of experience. And I think that's the problem. And and where I think a lot of the time it must be really frustrating for a lot of civil servants is to be uh, to, to hopefully have some of that awareness and finding um, ways of of making sure that that's reflected in in policies that are put through, I think. Whether they don't care or whether they don't understand, um, you know, it, it comes out the same way. There is a shocking lack of connection to people's real life experience. Hmm. Yeah. So what we have is you guys standing, Buckfastly Independent Group. You stood nine people in a 12-person council. What happened? So all, all nine of us were elected, three people from the old administration, and uh, that is where Flat Pat Democracy, the book, and, and Pete's guidance really came in because what we understood then was that we didn't want to just slot into the existing structures and systems. So we took um, the way it works is um, the new council elects a mayor and chair and deputy mayor and chairs of the committees. So we did that and we found ourselves as new councillors. I was deputy chair, but I ended up chairing the meetings because, again, I had the skill set to be able to chair them. It was quite difficult, actually, for several months. I think there was a lot of antagonism to what had happened. I think a lot of people's noses were very much put out of joint. So it got a little bit nasty at times. I'd say actually the most difficult thing was dealing with the amount of change we wanted to bring in in terms of our meeting structures and mm. what happened. Our staff at the time found it incredibly difficult. So we, I mean, we had a clerk and, a, and an assistant clerk, and you know, bless them, they'd pretty much been left alone unmanaged. This is this is so common across town and parish councils. Uh, clerks find it really difficult when a new group of people come in who actually want to do stuff, and um, yeah. 
the management system for clerks and the support they get is really low. So if you, you're used to every few years, councillors coming and going and nothing much happening, you found a coping mechanism. Right. Um, and a lot of the time you're looking at clerks meeting the legal minimum, you know, serving the committees and the meetings, and actually they're on a treadmill that have often been there for quite a long time. But they don't get much support from their councillors. No one really knows who's managing them. They're not really achieving anything of any great shakes. And they just found some sort of coping mechanism and obviously, you know, we came in with a sort of right, we're going to do some stuff. Hmm. That's quite threatening. And you end up so speaking to lots of councils um, who have found themselves in this position. The clerks tend to go one of two ways quite often. One is the absolute, you know, this is really stressful. I'm going to put up a fight and actually, you know, try and thwart what you're trying to do or find it really stressful and then try and adapt. We were really lucky. I mean, I, 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 I'm sure she won't mind me saying, our clerk was really sceptical about us. She, We'd been painted as like, you know, the evil do-gooders coming in, and she was found it really difficult. But we, we knew really clearly that we, we had to provide some management support to her. So after a few months of, of difficulty, we were able to, you know, find out what her job was, uh, see that actually she just wasn't, just wasn't supported she didn't have a proper desk they didn't they were sharing laptops they didn't have decent chairs or phones so it was like well we were you know we're kitting it out and I think over 12 months we we came to a position where um, there was an acceptance that we were trying to do good things for the community and now I'm really happy to say that our town clerk is really on board and is really supportive of the changes that have been made and this is the and same town clerk this is the same town clerk. It doesn't always end up like that. And I, I think it's one of the issues with the system is that town clerks need to have a manager and that manager needs to manage as any professional manager would do in terms of support and encouraging and setting out clear boundaries and direction and objectives and, and valuing their staff for their skills and experience. And I think right. that's something that doesn't happen. Right. So I've put a lot of energy into doing to doing that. So that was the diff most difficult piece of work. And I think we hit the ground running on being able to have a conversation with the community about what was needed. So we spent about 18 months or so uh, changing a lot of the governance rules. So hmm. a lot of what happens in town councils is there is a, a set of rules called the standing orders. And in, to my mind, they're often... They're quite bureaucratic, well, quite bureaucratic. They're really bureaucratic, obscure, written in a way which is really difficult to understand. And in a lot of councils, they are weaponized by either, you'll have seen it on the recent Hanford Parish Council uh, debacle yes, that's hit yes. the news. I mean, that is classic, where there is a set of standing orders which are then weaponized and used against people trying to do stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the time what you find when you're trying to do stuff differently is it's, oh, you can't do that, that you can't do that, you can't do that, you know, the standing orders don't allow us. Yeah, it's against the rules that we made. And that's the thing, that's what people don't understand is you can write your own standing orders. So there are some bits of, of law which you have to follow, but they tend to be, you know, perfectly reasonable bits of law. So there are bits in there in, in that go back to the legislation, which is around the required number of days you have to give for issuing an agenda, um, taking decisions about things that are on the agenda, publishing your accounts, those sorts of things. So there's a there's a bit of law in that. The rest of the stuff, frankly, is a bunch of bullshit. There's stuff in there that will be written about public participation at a meeting and that members of the public who come to the meetings can talk for you know two minutes at the start of the meeting mm. and well you, that's there's nothing in law that says you have to do that so right. we were really keen we took our and um, we don't have a grand town council uh, town hall by any stretch of the imagine but there was a, a room in there called the chamber which was you know big enough for 12 people and a couple of people perched at the back on chairs and with backs to everybody and big glowering portraits of like you know big dead benefactors all over the place. Um, we took ours out of that and put it down into a much bigger meeting room, you know, just like you would in a professional meeting, a horse-shaped table mm. with chairs where people could participate. We allowed people to participate in the meetings with a decent chair, which means if you're a decent chair, you're able to manage 
participation. Yep. So writing your own standing orders in a way which are understandable and work and actually contain the law but nothing else is really important because otherwise you end up with councils arguing over section 32.b yes. about yes. whether it's ultraviaries or not to, you know, extend a decision on and it's like really who cares? Really really seriously who cares? Don't have those things in your standing orders then then you know people with that mindset can't use them to shut down valid discussion. My understanding of the flat pack democracy model is that you also bring in a facilitator to help facilitate the meetings. Did you need that or with your experience as a chair were you able not to have that? We we didn't have a facilitator. Um I I did do it. Um but um you know, I've obviously chaired lots of meetings and 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 done a lot of training on, on meetings. It's not you know, not that I'm particularly brilliant at it, but again, it was better than what was there. But I think um, one of the problems in a lot of small places is actually funding. You know, we don't have money. We're doing this for free. The town council budget when we took over was sixty four thousand pounds a year, which total in total which meant that by the time you'd paid for the clerk and the assistant clerk and all the bills of the town hall, there was, you know, a small nothing left. So what was happening is they would give out, you know, £250 grants to organisations that knew that the grant system existed, which most people didn't, um, and that was it. If your purpose in life is to save money and not to do stuff, mm. then the best way of doing it would be to abolish the council because then you'd save £64,000. <laughs> it's not doing anything. It's the most inefficient way of giving out you know, £2,000 worth of grants that I've ever seen. So it's like we, we very much came with a view of if there are things that the community wants to do, then something needs to happen. So the ability to pay for a facilitator was was not there. But, you know, you'll often find that those skill sets exist um, somewhere in the town. And, you know, you can be creative how you did it. We we ended up not doing that, although we did, we did do some quite creative meetings later on. And we have subsequently brought in people to facilitate meetings. So much more like workshops for decision making than than meetings right. but actually you know that's pre-covid and i can't remember that far back these days you can do it on zoom as we discovered from the parish council that went viral i'll put a link to that in the show notes too before we move on to what people can do i just want to look a little bit more at how did you begin the dialogue with a local community that isn't used to a town council asking their opinion just in a, a purely logistical sense i'm curious to know were you using Facebook? Did you hold referenda? Did you bring together a people's assembly? What did you do to garner the information that you needed about what people wanted? Both formal and informal structures there. I mean, formally, as a council, we started holding consultations. So we ran a whole series of consultations, which you know would range from uh, meetings in big rooms around tables. And we, you know, we're only a little place. You know, I think the biggest one we might have had eighty people there and we started theming conversations so we we ran workshops which were like what are the main issues that were coming up and then we'd do work to theme them and and then we'd hold more workshops and narrow it down and we we got to a point where there were I always think of it as five clusters like to help me remember like on the face of a dice so there was a whole bunch of people talking about um things to do things for kids to do children's services also things for older people to do as well so uh, things for kids to do and and sort of how do you fill that gap because we we'd lost the services there were things around uh, growing and food and planting and nature and wildlife so that was everything from britain in bloom all the way through to sort of transition town and do your own compost and stuff so there was right. a big a big uh, group on that there was a bunch of people around food sort of nutrition and support and welfare sorts of issues there was oh actually uh, children's services and older people's services was, was, were two separate sections and then there was um stuff around um support to community groups that actually we had a lot of community groups who were struggling for funding for constitution for organizational structure uh, for, for um, knowledge and skills, and um, as we sort of as we pulled out of the ether through these conversations, these sort of broad themes, we then narrowed it down, and we came up with um, again over a course of a year, I'm going to say six, but I think it might be eight projects 
that we sort of were able to cost up and deliver. So, you know, we did traditional sort of group facilitation, lots of post-it notes going up, moving around different themed areas. And we ended up with these boards, which basically said, right, we'd like things for our kids to do in the summer holidays because there's nothing for them to do. We would like some new floodlights at the football pitch. And actually, that would make us a night landing pad for the air ambulance. We would like to have money advice services in town. So Citizens Advice Bureau. We would like someone, the outdoor environment is being neglected. So we could have a town ranger who could do some of the outdoor caretaking type roles. We'd like some training and skills and better grants for community groups. We would like to continue to support um, the community's use of the town hall and the swimming pool because they're things that we value. And uh, the last one, number eight, was about solar panels on the town hall. And actually, we costed those up and we did a really good breakdown of the budget. So we said, right, we've got £64,000 a year the town council can become a service provider if that's what you want. So we could become a service provider. Well, there's three ways things can happen in a community is you all volunteer your time and do it for free. Or we um, pay somebody to come in and do it. Or the town council does it. And actually, if you want stuff to happen, then it usually requires money. So, you know, we've costed all of these things up. The press is in the room. Uh, we we were able to say, and again, I'm making these figures up, but it's broadly indicative. I think it was like for three pence per week per household, we could bring the Citizens Advice Bureau back to town. And for 11 pence per week per household, we could create a free activity program for young people. And for 21 pence per week per household, we could make sure that the swimming pool stays open. And we 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 did that across the whole piece. And it came to... Um, 97 pence per week per household would fund all of those projects so what was interesting is we were able to say at the moment you pay on average a pound per week per household so if we make this decision the press who are in the room will have on the front pages of their newspapers that we're increasing your council tax by 97 percent and it is true we are if that's what you want but want. it will be from a pound per week per house per month for per week per household to one pound ninety seven pence per week per household. And what we need to know is, do you want all or none or some of these services? Because if we if you say you want that one and that one, we can work out. And actually, for the people who were in the room, which again was you know sixty seventy eighty people, so it's but universally not the whole town, but it's the people. And we were running these in mm. quite a friendly way, so we did get quite a wide spectrum of people um they said just we've been talking about this long enough just get on and sort it out would you so then (laughs) did it so we increased our council tax by 97 (laughs) percent only the party politicians tried to make anything of it so the party politicians were oh look this is shocking and actually in town nobody's really made any notice about and it's just become accepted that we have these things they work they run been transformational and we have these things and it's good and we have a process in place now which means that people understand and for me that was part of a deliberate part of the process I wanted to do two things I wanted things to get start getting fixed in town because if you're going to wait for any of the other government levels to come in and do anything it just wasn't going to happen so we were not going to we either didn't have anything or we fixed it ourselves but also I wanted to reconnect people back to two things one is to the vote in Bookfastly it matters how you vote Right. If you want stuff to happen, then you need to vote for people who are going to make it happen. If you would rather have that 97 pence in your pocket a week, then it's really important you vote the other way. But it matters how you vote here mm. because there yeah. is a distinction between the party politicians, the Conservatives and the Lib Dems who actually would go on a, you shouldn't be paying 97% increase in your tax and they're evil and bad and, and you know. And if that's what you want, then you need to be voting for them. But you won't have the services. You can't... You can't have both. You can't have both. And and so reconnecting people to taxation and their vote yeah. was really important to me. And at a town level, if it, you say to somebody, if I get 21 pence per household per week, it creates enough money for you to have an outdoor swimming pool. 
that is really important because at central government level, that's a really difficult thing to do. That was 2015 you were all elected. So there's been another round of elections four years later, 2019. Did you then sweep the board, all 12? Yeah, well, we got 10 candidates that time and all 10. Okay. And I'm curious to know about the two the two kind of party politicians. Are they beginning to warm to what's happening and to see that it's good? Or are they still locked in, tax is bad, we're better doing nothing? Yeah. Well, one of them's party and one of them's not. But yes, they 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 either vote against or actually more often than what they do is they abstent themselves from the vote. So they're either not there so they don't have to be shown to vote against it or they abstain at the vote so that they don't support it. You know, sticking your head above and saying, actually, we can do something. Not only, you know, do you open yourself up for pressures uh, um, and, you know, public scrutiny, but you also, it's you know, it's quite hard work. We don't have staff at our level. And and that, and you're all volunteers. We're all volunteers, yeah. So you know we've got we've got our clerk and we've got um, an assistant. But actually, what's different between us and a place like Froome, for example? I don't know how many staff Froome's got, but it's certainly like a dozen or more. At the sort of level we're talking about here, actually, it's a lot of work because we're we're doing that, which is, again is why you know prioritising your activities, having a team, and having a broad skill set is really important. Can people access? Is there a Be Book Fastly website or a Facebook yeah, page? Yeah, Be Book Fastly. Yeah, we're on so it's bebookfastly.co.uk. Brilliant. I'll I'll put that in the show notes too. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram and and Facebook as Brilliant. well. So because we need to stop. I can't believe an hour has gone. But just as as we're heading towards a close, we have elections coming up this May for some town, county and district councils. How can people take the inspiration of what you've done and run with it, not just in the UK, but there must be within democratic processes around the world? I'm remembering the only other place I know that participatory budgeting has really gone well and, and everywhere it has done. The local people always vote to pay more tax if they know where it's going. You know, this is the nature of local participatory budgeting. But if people are inspired, how can they do this themselves? What's the route? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. We, I, I think the first thing to do is to go to Flatpak Democracy and take a look at that. that we've got um, a good volunteer team behind that, and that's the other thing. Lots of people can't believe we do this for free. I've had lots of questions. Where does the money come from? It's like, well, what money? <laughs> In the party system, there is a complete lack of credit they cannot comprehend that we do this for free anyway we do so go to flat pack democracy you can sign up there and um i would say get a copy of the book i'm not on commission and it tells you what you can do and i think there's two, there's two things one is to understand why if you're in a community and you think this could be better there's stuff that needs doing then if you don't stand up and do it then who is going to do it you know i go and talk yeah. to other people find yourself a group of people who feel the same and then let us help you. We have mentors around the UK. So we're working now with dozens and dozens and dozens of parish and town councils. And and we have people who can talk you through what to do, how to approach it, and just to provide you that support and encouragement to, to go on. And I think, you know, once you've once you've got to the election and you've campaigned, you know, if you can get a majority on those councils, then there is another level of, of support we can give about what to do once you find yourself in control of a council. So, you know, we're all really friendly. There's a huge amount of experience and a passion for transforming local politics. Town and parish councils, in my opinion, are absolute secret weapons for communities against austerity and cuts and for creating stronger communities. But more importantly than that, I think, is they're really unlegislated, which means that every other level of government tends to be capped about what it can do. Right. Town and parish councils are not. Okay. So actually, with just a little bit of of uh, process, town and parish councils can do anything that is legal which means that they're uniquely placed in the government system to do all sorts of things. And the only thing that caps what you can do is your level of ambition and 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 your your capacity to deliver, and there's ways of growing that. So actually, if you think of something in your community, you, you don't have much sway over planning, 
You don't have much sway over highways and schools and hospitals. Practically everything else is pretty much up for grabs. Wow. That is a fantastic place to stop. Town and Parish Council's local democracy is the secret weapon for creating stronger communities and and getting people to engage with the political process in a way that matters and realising that votes actually count. That's fantastic. Pam, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Pam for showing us what can be done if we care enough to be involved. As ever, when we stopped recording, the conversation continued. This always happens. I always wish I'd kept us recording, but we have to stop at some point. But this week, Pam made the point that I really want to share with you that if there isn't an election looming in your part of the world, you can still get involved. Pam said you can flat pack your local council by publishing all of their decisions, by questioning how they reached the decisions that they made, by saying what could have been done differently, what you would have done differently, so that when there are elections, you're in a place to act. Because bringing people to a place where they understand that democracy isn't about two parties shouting at each other like five-year-olds across an unbridgeable divide, that instead we can be emotionally literate and bring compassion and care and decency and integrity and the best of our social skills, our modern social technologies, to the process of governance, which is just a bunch of people that we choose from amongst ourselves to make the best things happen for our communities, however big they are, the local ones at parish level, up to the national and international ones. So if we can get people engaged in local politics, then I think we can step past the desperate limbic hijack of our national politics. And then, at all levels, we can change the narrative of who we are, what we're doing, where we're going, and why. Which is the urgency of our time. So that is it for this week. As ever, huge thanks to Caro for the sound production and the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith for the website and the tech stuff. And thanks to you for listening. If you would like to support us, we do now have a Patreon page. Thank you to those who have already contributed. If you don't fancy supporting with Patreon, then please give us some stars and a review. Actually, five stars would be nice. And just spread the word. Get us out to your friends. Pass the link to anybody that you can think of who would really like to be part of the urgent moment of now and the ways that we can change the world. And if you really want to dive into that, there is always the membership programme on our website, which is accidentalgods.life. And the show notes there with all of the links to Flatpak Democracy, to all that Pam is doing, to a wonderful little video that they made all about Flatpak Democracy, and to the Hanford Parish Council meltdown, which was kind of interesting in the process of local democracy. So that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.